Chapter One of the Daffodil Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Daffodil Mystery by Edgar Wallace. Chapter One An Offer Rejected. I am afraid I don't understand you, Mr. Lyne. Odette Ryder looked gravely at the young man who lolled against his open desk. Her clear skin was tinted with the faintest pink, and there was in the sober depths of those grey eyes of hers a light which would have warned a man less satisfied with his own genius and power of persuasion than Thornton Lyne. He was not looking at her face. His eyes were running approvingly over her perfect figure, noting the straightness of the back, the fine poise of the head, the shapeliness of the slender hands. He pushed back his long black hair from his forehead and smiled. It pleased him to believe that his face was cast in an intellectual mould, and that the somewhat unhealthy pastiness of his skin might be described as the pallor of thought. Presently he looked away from her through the big bay window which overlooked the crowded floor of Lyne's stores. He had had this office built in the entresol, and the big windows had been put in so that he might at any time overlook the most important department which it was his good fortune to control. Now and again, as he saw, a head would be turned in his direction, and he knew that the attention of all the girls was concentrated upon the little scene, plainly visible from the floor below, in which an unwilling employee was engaged. She, too, was conscious of the fact, and her discomfort and dismay increased. She made a little movement as if to go, but he stopped her. "'You don't understand, Odette,' he said. His voice was soft and melodious, and held the hint of a caress. "'Did you read my little book?' he asked suddenly. She nodded. "'Yes, I read it. Some of it,' she said, and the color deepened on her face. He chuckled. "'I suppose you thought it rather curious that a man in my position should bother his head to write poetry, eh?' he asked. "'Most of it was written before I came into this beastly shop, my dear, before I developed into a tradesman.' She made no reply, and he looked at her curiously. "'What did you think of them?' he asked. Her lips were trembling, and again he mistook the symptoms. "'I thought they were perfectly horrible,' she said in a low voice. "'Horrible!' He raised his eyebrows. "'How very middle-class you are, Miss Ryder,' he scoffed. "'Those verses have been acclaimed by some of the best critics in the country as reproducing all the beauties of old Hellenic poetry.' She went to speak, but stopped herself, and stood with lips compressed. Thornton Lyne shrugged his shoulders, and strode to the other end of his luxuriously equipped office. "'Poetry, like cucumbers, is an acquired taste,' he said after a while. "'You have to be educated up to some kind of literature. I dare say there will come a time when you will be grateful that I have given you an opportunity of meeting beautiful thoughts dressed in beautiful language.' She looked up at this. "'May I go now, Mr. Lyne?' she asked. "'Not yet,' he replied coolly. "'You said just now you didn't understand what I was talking about. I'll put it plainer this time. You're a very beautiful girl, as you probably know, and you are destined in all probability to be the maid of some very average, suburban-minded person, who will give you a life tantamount to slavery. That is the life of the middle-class woman, as you probably know. And why would you submit to this bondage?' "'Simply because a person in a black coat and a white collar "'has mumbled certain passages over you, "'passages which have neither meaning "'nor to an intelligent person's significance. 
I would not take the trouble of going through such a foolish ceremony, but I would take a great deal of trouble to make you happy. He walked towards her slowly, and laid one hand upon her shoulder. Instinctively she shrank back, and he laughed. What do you say? She swung round on him, her eyes blazing, but her voice under control. I happen to be one of those foolish, suburban-minded people, she said, who give significance to those mumbled words you were speaking about. Yet I am broad-minded enough to believe that the marriage ceremony would not make you any happier or more unhappy whether it was performed or omitted. But whether it were marriage or any other kind of union, I should at least require a man. He frowned at her. What do you mean? he asked, and the soft quality of his voice underwent a change. I would not want an erratic creature who puts horrid sentiments into indifferent verse. I repeat, I should want a man. His face went livid. "'Do you know whom you are talking to?' he asked, raising his voice. "'I am talking to Thornton Lyne,' said she, breathing quickly, "'the proprietor of Lyne's stores, the employer of Odette Ryder, who draws three pounds every week from him.' He was breathless with anger. "'Be careful,' he gasped. "'Be careful.' "'I am speaking to a man whose whole life is a reproach to the very name of man,' she went on speaking rapidly. A man who is sincere in nothing, who is living on the brains and reputation of his father, and the money that has come through the hard work of better men. "'You can't scare me,' she cried scornfully, as he took a step towards her. "'Oh, yes, I know I'm going to leave your employment, and I'm leaving to-night.' The man was hurt, humiliated, almost crushed by her scorn. This she suddenly realized, and her quick woman's sympathy checked all further bitterness. "'I'm sorry I've been so unkind.' she said in a more gentle tone. "'But you rather provoked me, Mr. Lyne.' He was incapable of speech, and could only shake his head and point with unsteady finger to the door. "'Get out,' he whispered. Odette Ryder walked out of the room, but the man did not move. Presently, however, he crossed to the window, and looking down upon the floor, saw her trim figure move slowly through the crowd of customers and assistants, and mount the three steps which led to the chief cashier's office." "'You shall pay for this, my girl,' he muttered. He was wounded beyond forgiveness. He was a rich man's son, and had lived in a sense a sheltered life. He had been denied the advantage which a public school would have brought to him, and had gone to college surrounded by psychophants and poseurs as blatant as himself, and never once had the cold breath of criticism been directed at him, except in what he was wont to describe as the reptile press. He licked his dry lips— and walking to his desk pressed the bell. After a short wait, for he had purposely sent his secretary away, a girl came in. "'Has Mr. Tarling come?' he asked. "'Yes, sir, he's in the boardroom. He has been waiting a quarter of an hour.' He nodded. "'Thank you,' he said. "'Shall I tell him?' "'I will go tell him myself,' said Lynn. He took a cigarette out of his gold case, struck a match, and lit it. His nerves were shaken, his hands were trembling, but the storm in his heart was soothing down under the influence of this great thought. Tarling! What an inspiration! Tarling, with his reputation for ingenuity, his almost sublime, uncanny cleverness! What could be more wonderful than this coincidence? He passed with quick steps along the corridor, which connected his private den with the boardroom, and came into that spacious apartment with outstretched hand. The man who turned to greet him may have been twenty-seven or thirty-seven. 
He was tall, but lithe rather than broad. His face was the color of mahogany, and the blue eyes turned to Lyne were unwinking and expressionless. This was the first impression that Lyne received. He took Lyne's hand in his. It was as soft as a woman's. As they shook, Lyne noticed a third figure in the room. He was below middle height and sat in the shadow thrown by a wall pillar. He too rose, but bowed his head. "'A Chinaman, eh?' said Lyne, looking at this unexpected apparition with curiosity. "'Oh, of course, Mr. Tarling, I had almost forgotten that you almost come straight from China. Won't you sit down?' He followed the other's example, threw himself into a chair, and offered his cigarette case. "'The work I am going to ask you to do I will discuss later,' he said. "'But I must explain that I was partly attracted to you by the description I read in one of the newspapers of how you had discovered the Duchess of Henley's jewels, and partly by the stories I heard of you when I was in China. "'You are not attached to Scotland Yard, I understand?' Tarling shook his head. "'No,' he said quietly. "'I was regularly attached to the police in Shanghai, and I had intended joining up with Scotland Yard. In fact, I came over for that purpose.' but several things happened which made me open my own detective agency, the most important of which happenings was that Scotland Yard refused to give me the free hand I require. The other nodded quickly. China rang with the achievements of Jack Oliver Tarling, or, as the Chinese criminal world had named him in parody of his name, Lei Jen, the hunter of men. Line judged all people by his own standard and saw in this unemotional man a possible tool, and in all probability a likely accomplice. The detective force in Shanghai did curious things by all accounts, and were not too scrupulous as to whether they kept within the strict letter of the law. There were even rumors that the hunter of men was not above torturing his prisoners, if by so doing he could elicit confessions which would implicate some greater criminal. Line did not and could not know all the legends which had grown around the name of the hunter, nor could he be expected in reason to differentiate between the truth and the false. "'I pretty well know why you've sent for me,' Tarling went on. He spoke slowly and had a decided drawl. "'You gave me a rough outline in your letter. You suspect a member of your staff of having consistently robbed the firm for many years. A Mr. Milberg, your chief departmental manager.' Line stopped him with a gesture and lowered his voice. "'I want you to forget that for a little while, Mr. Tarling,' he said. "'In fact, I am going to introduce you to Milberg, and maybe Milberg can help us in my scheme. I do not say that Milberg is honest, but my suspicions were unfounded. But for the moment I have a much greater business on hand, and you will oblige me if you will forget all the things I have said about Milberg. I will ring for him now.' He walked to the long table, which ran half the length of the room, took up a telephone which stood at one end, and spoke to the operator. "'Tell Mr. Milberg to come to me in the boardroom, please,' he said. Then he went back to his visitor. "'That matter of Milberg can wait,' he said. "'I am not sure that I shall proceed any farther with it. Did you make any inquiries at all? If so, you had better tell me the gist of them before Milberg comes.' Tarling took a small white card from his pocket and glanced at it. "'What salary are you paying, Milberg?' Nine hundred a year,' replied Lyne. "'He is living at the rate of five thousand, said Tarling. "'I may even discover that he's living at a much larger rate. "'He has a house up the river, entertains very lavishly.' "'But the other brushed aside the report impatiently. "'No, let that wait,' he cried. 
I tell you I have much more important business. Milberg may be a thief. Did you send for me, sir? He turned round quickly. The door had opened without noise, and a man stood on the threshold of the room, an ingratiating smile on his face, his hands twining and intertwining ceaselessly, as though he was washing them with invisible soap. End of chapter 1